Hi, my name is Katrina Stroll, and if you're listening to this, you are listening to the very first episode of Murder Obsessed. If you're like me, you are a true crime junkie. Like, I celebrate spooky season starting like mid-August, all of September, and all of October. And I just, I can't get enough. I love podcasts about true crime, YouTube videos. I mean, like... All I watch is scary movies and true crime documentaries and such. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and give my podcast a subscription, a like, whatever it is that we do on here because I'm totally new to creating my own podcast. But stay tuned for a super grisly murder story. Hi, welcome to Murder Obsessed. So today's story takes place in Cleveland with a very badly behaved lady. Her name is Eva Caper. So the story starts, well, today, at this moment, I am starting July 15th, 1919. So on Fashionable Lake Avenue in a posh Neapolitan showplace is the Don Caper House. Now, this is just several blocks west of Cleveland. This family, they were miserable, unhappy, and honestly did not want to be together. Don Caber definitely had the most reasons to be miserable. He was 46 years old and formerly healthy, active, well-to-do printer. But within the past six months, he had become helpless, bedridden, pain-wracked, an invalid. He was confined most of the time to his second floor bedroom. He had lost all the use of his limbs except for his index and middle finger on his left hand. His decline had begun with an apparent influenza attack during the previous November. Despite the fact that he was in the hospital, he had surgery for suspected cancer of the stomach and appendix, he was steadily deteriorating. The doctors had no clue what was wrong with him. They would mutter things like rheumatism, cancer, neurosis, but they just honestly had no idea what was wrong with this dude. So Kaber was increasingly getting more sick. He was feeble. He was very fearful, but apparently most of his fear was of his wife, Eva. Now this wife, she was ever attentive. She insisted that she was the one who was going to feed him. And strangely so, the soups, strawberries, and chocolates that she gave him made him violently sick. Now, Dan, he tried to complain to anyone who would listen, try to tell his brother, his father, but any time that he would start to talk, Eva would appear in the room. Eva wasn't a very happy person in July of 1919. She was 39 years old, and she had struggled and schemed and fought her way from nothing to the status of a very respected Lakewood matron and the spouse of a wealthy printer. She was born Catherine Brickle to parents of modest origin, but she was an awful person to start, even at an early age. At the age of seven, Kitty, which is what they called Catherine, Kitty had already had a reputation of a demonic child. Could you imagine that? Seven years old. And people were like, that's a demon. Right there is a demon. 
She apparently would have unprovoked rages in which she would assault her playmates, kicking and screaming and sometimes tearing their hair out and her own hair out. She was a juvenile who ran away. She was a thief. She was apparently expelled from school. And she spent part of her adolescence at the home of the Good Shepherd. Her sole alternative at age six to prison for stealing $85 from a known acquaintance was to go to this home of Good Shepherd. She worked as a chambermaid at, East, at an Eastside mansion where she acquired a taste for expensive things. But at 17, she married a barkeep, Thomas McArdle. The marriage lasted two solid months, and Eva subsequently disappeared. After dumping the fruit of her brief nuptials, her daughter Marion, on her long-suffering parents, she peaced out. So before Dan, Eva was married again, briefly, to a barber named David Frankel. But it's probable that Dan didn't know anything about these previous marriages. So what he did know was she was quarrelsome, spiteful, financially demanding, and increasingly impatient with his physical deterioration. Eva was particularly upset that July because Dan was reluctant to finance another year at Smith College for her daughter, Marion McArdle. And Eva was beginning to suspect that Dan was thinking about changing his will. So, at the Caber house that July, Eva's mother, 76 years old, no, I'm sorry, 67 years old, she'd had a hard life. Four of her eight children were already dead, and her favorite child, Charles, had frequent trouble with the law. He also had a short prison term for theft. So Mrs. Brickle decidedly mixed feelings toward Eva, whom she had always referred to as Mrs. Caber. Caber. But she nevertheless deferred to her daughter in all things. Surely not the ideal mother-in-law for poor, sick Dan Caber. So, weird childhood, sad parents. I mean, losing eight children, or losing four of her eight children, that's half of them. Like, I can't imagine losing even one. But she's living with Dan and Eva, and she calls her daughter Mrs. Caber. Like, what in the world? Also, in the summer of 1919, Marion McArdle, Eva's daughter, was living at this house. Now, 19 years old, Marion was only interested in good times, popular music, and her dreams of a career as a chorus girl. Like her mother and grandmother, Marion made no secret of her hatred for her stepfather. Once, screaming at him at a formal dinner party, What do you mean? I don't take any orders from you. Ooh, scandal. Clearly, the house of Caber was beginning to resemble the house of Arturus, more than it did an average happy family. So the Caper case remains a great murder story in Cleveland, which is saying something because there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in Cleveland. No offense. So sometime mid-July 1919, Eva Caber told her family she was going away to visit her sister, Mrs. H.J. McGinnis, at Cedar Point. Ooh, fun. Cedar Point. Probably didn't have the, you know, arcades and roller coasters at this time, but... Still fun. She's going to go visit her sister. So, Wednesday, July 16th, she drove away, accompanied by her four-year-old adopted daughter, Patricia. 48 hours went by. On the Friday of, on the evening of Friday, July 18th, the residents of the Caber House at 12537 Lake Avenue retired fairly early. 
It's just a normal night. They're tired. Go to bed. The end. Just kidding. Darn Haber dozed fitfully in his spacious northeast bedroom on the second floor. Next to his room, separated by a locked door, were the sleeping quarters of stepdaughter Marion McArdle. And on this night, she had a friend, Miss Anna Bear, Marion's neighborhood school chum. They're having a slumber party, sleeping, you know, having a good old time. They had just returned from a picture show. Up on the third floor, F.W. Utterback, Caber's 60-ish male nurse, is sleeping. And there's no reason to doubt that everyone retired to their room at about 10, 10, 15 p.m. With the exception of Grandmother Mary Brickle, who later testified at the inquest that she carefully locked the first floor door and windows before retiring. Sometime about 10.30, all hell broke loose in the Copper household. Although Marion McCardle and Anna Bear initially claimed that they heard nothing unusual, they eventually allowed that, yes, they had heard some screaming. Like, some screaming? Like, okay. There was not once a call for help, but many screams. It will be a long time before we forget those screams. Except, you know, earlier, when we forgot that we heard screams and said no. The screams that Marion and Anna heard were probably exactly what Caber's male nurse heard when he abruptly aroused from a sound sleep. Utterback, Utterback, murder, come quick. Come quick, Utterback did, running down the stairs in his bare feet in union suit to Caber's second floor bedroom. He burst through the open door to discover a ghastly scene. There was a bloody knife on the floor and Don Caber was lying there in a pool of his own blood. Caber was conscious, and when Utterback asked him what had happened, he replied, a man with a cap. Look for a man with a finger almost bitten off. I bit his finger. I think there were two of them with it. My wife had done this. End quote. Pandemonium ensued. Miriam, Miss Bear, and Grandmother Brickle appeared soon in the second floor hallway and contributed loud hysterics. Doctors were summoned, the police arrived, and Dan Caber was rushed to Lakewood Hospital. There, doctors labored to save his life. It could not have been an easy task. He had been stabbed 24 times. Five abdominal wounds on the left side, three navel, three wounds to the left buttocks, three wounds on the right buttocks, and the unkindest cut of all, 11 stabs to the scrotum. That's his crotch. Not to mention numerous scratches on the face and throat, clearly indicating that someone had held the invalid down while another wielded a very cruel knife. Don Caber died hard shortly after 1 p.m. the following day. To his last breath, he repeated only that his slayer had been a man with a cap and that his wife had done this. Meanwhile, where is the dead man's wife? Well, Eva returned to her home at 5.30 p.m. the following day. She expressed appropriate surprise, especially when she found silverware strewn on the dining room floor. The apparent residue of an interrupted burglary. Robbers have taken my silver. It's probably the most accurate estimate of what she said on this occasion. Like, my husband's dead, who cares, but dang, where's my silver? She quickly posted a reward for what her husband's killer for her husband's killer, arranged for Dan's funeral, and filed his will for probate. Eva Caber was always good at short-term goals, and in the short term, all she had to do was get through the inquest, which was opened by Cuyahoga County Coroner P.J. Byrne, 
and July 23rd at 10 a.m., which she did. In stubborn, crude, typically brazen form, Eva responded with a combination of calm denial and strategic outbursts of feminine tears. Suggestions that her relations with Dan had been less than amicable were stoutly denied. And after all, no one could prove that Eva had been anywhere near the murderous scene of the fatal night. So Eva simply wavered and wept until the prosecutor gave up. And it was clear, even before the end of the inquest, that the verdict was going to be will for murder by unknown. The verdict was duly delivered despite the fact that a second autopsy disclosed up to 40 grains of arsenic in Dan's emaciated and perforated corpse. Despite heroic efforts, the source of the arsenic could not be traced, nor could it be proven just how or by whom it had been administered to John Caper. And it could have been worse. One of the initial theories given attention by the police was that Don Caber had committed suicide. With 47 knife wounds? 11 of which to his scrotum? Yeah, that's definitely how I want to go. And that, seemingly, was the end of it. Despite the suspicions of the police, Eva Cobber crashed in her, cashed in her husband's insurance policies, sold the Big Lake Avenue residence, and left town. It appeared at that time that she would have had the last word on the subject, which was, I can't imagine who could be guilty of such a deed. I never heard that my husband had enemies. Yeah, because she'd been best friends with him. <laughs> no one except Eva was completely satisfied with the inquest verdict. But the police and other interested parties now dropped the case for lack of evidence. Well, almost all interested parties. One who didn't was Moses Caper, Dan's 71-year-old father. He swore a mighty oath on July 1919 that he would spend the rest of his life and all of his considerable fortune to bring his son's murderer to justice. There had been bad blood between the Caper family and Eva ever since her abrupt marriage to Dan in September 1907. The Cabers were Jewish and they apparently took a dim view of the worldly, temperamental Gentile who had captivated their Dan. Nothing since the marriage had changed their stance. The new Eva had led Dan a dog's life, and they never doubted from the beginning that it was she who had arranged for his death. So Eva left Cleveland to enjoy her newfound widow's wealth. Moses Caber went talk to the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Moses had little choice in the matter. Police had dropped the case, and the Pinkertons were the best-known private investigative agency in the world. There's no question that they gave Caber Moses his money's worth during the two years that followed. So within weeks, a already suspicious Eva was eating, sleeping, and breathing in undercover Pinkerton detectives wherever she went. She hired a milliner shortly after leaving Cleveland. The milliner was a Pinkerton. She hired a maid too, also a Pinkerton. When she dined in restaurants, she had only dined with Pinkertons. When she went to the movies, Pinkerton sat right behind her. Buddy, they were all up in her grill. The most important break for Moses Caber and the Pinkertons was a recruitment of Mrs. Ethel Burnham as an operative. Eva's former Lakewood friend, they had met during her honeymoon with Dan in 1908. And Ethel had maintained her ties to Eva after the murder for all, all time's sake. Although Ethel disapproved of much in Eva's character, 
and Ethel had been particularly shocked to find Eva laughing on the day of Dan's funeral when she dropped in to comfort the grieving widow. To think I laid him out in a dirty shirt, Eva cackled uproariously. David wasn't a fan. What Dan wasn't worth a clean shirt. Given her suspicions, it didn't take long for the Pinkertons to convince Mrs. Burnham that she and only she could help them get the evidence to convict her friend of first-degree murder. So next to Eva, Ethel was one of the most fascinating characters in this whole story. She was a perfectly pleasant, respectable, wonderful Lakewood matron, happily married wife and mother of an eight-year-old son. She left her unconventional life for some months to pose as an unhappy, restless, good-time party girl. And who was ready to party with her? Eva Caber. So Eva got in touch with, or Ethel got in touch with Eva, painting herself as an aggrieved, bitter spouse of the Eva Caber type. Mm. So this was music to Eva's ears. and She blandly promised to Ethel that she would help her get rid of her husband if she needed her to. Before long, the two were traveling around the country, sharing hotel rooms, going to movies, and restaurants together. Now, Miss Bethel later claimed that she did not enjoy the whole thing. She was totally doing it for the sake of justice. But, like, come on. Like, running around the country, partying, having a good time. Like, you didn't have a little fun. As to the morality of betraying her former friend, Ethel said this. It was not a pleasant thing to have to betray the confidence of one who had been my friend. But if I had helped to serve the end of justice, I'm glad. So soon, Mrs. Burnin could see that Eva Caber was very troubled. She said that she was a woman of violent temper and increasingly paranoid. Well, is it paranoid if it's true? Like, you know... Everyone's like, oh, you're paranoid, and then it turns out that it's true. And so, you're not really paranoid, you're just, you know, picking up on some stuff. But anyway, she was paranoid that she was being tailed by detectives. She would often ask Ethel if she thought someone nearby was a DTS. Okay, and that was Eva's term for Pinkerton, the detectives. Okay, but she also could not stop talking about her late husband's death. Eventually, she even became suspicious of Ethel. Especially after Ethel questioned Eva about some words that she cried out one night in her sleep. I did it. I did it. I did it. At that time, Eva confronted Mrs. Burnham and demanded to know that if she too were a DTS. But Ethel convincingly swore this mighty oath at Eva's behest. I swear to God that I hope to go home and see my son blind before I'm in with the Pinkerton people. Uh-oh. I hope her kid don't go blind. Shortly after this, Eva dropped Mrs. Burnham as a traveling companion. But Ethel's work was not done yet. She returned to Cleveland where she immediately integrated herself in a familiar fashion with Mary Brickle, Eva's mother. Mrs. Burnham had always felt sorry for the weak-willed Mary. She had been aware for years that Eva bullied her mother to do the caber laundry for free, while Eva regularly took $4 per week from her husband to pay the laundress. Um, so Eva, where was that money going? But their budding friendship soon yielded the following confidence from Mrs. Brickerman. 
conveniently uttered to Mrs. Berman at the BDF Keith Theater in the presence of two movie patrons behind them, who, you know, just happened to be Pinkerton detectives. She did it, and she did it for the money, Mrs. Berkman went on to say. But if they try to put it on Charlie, which is Eva's brother, I'll tell you, I'll tell everybody I know. It was now spring, okay, and Eva had already went through all of her inheritance, and she was running a failing millinery shop in New York City. Her daughter Marion, Marion was traveling around the United States as a member of the, the chorus line in Pretty Baby. Okay, so the Pinkertons knew all of this, all right, and Eva had spent much of her money on a lot of strange things, such as fortune tellers, clairvoyants, spirit mediums, and petty criminals. They began to shadow these people, too, sensing that they might have some connection to the two-year-old murder. Finally, Moses Kaber, remember, Dad's, Dan's dad, okay, they met the county prosecutor, Edward Stanton, and Lakewood Police, and they set a trap. It sprang perfectly on poor Eva's mother, Mary Brickle. Called without warning on a Sunday afternoon, May 31st, she went to the station with her son, Charles. Mary was sent to sit in a room with an open door. Minutes later, she heard Prosecutor Stanton shout at Charles, Lock this man up and charge him with the murder of Dan Caper. He's the one who did it. Split second later, she heard the clang of the cell door slam shut. Trick worked like magic, man. That 16-year-old old grandmother was singing like a canary, just as she had threatened that she would do if they tried to put it on Charlie. On June 1st, 1919, Assistant County Prosecutor John T. Cassidy announced first-degree murder indictment against Eva Carver, Mary Brickle, and Marion McArdle. Now, Eva, she tried to flee, but she was caught, arrested eventually at a New York City friend's house on Saturday, June 4th. Two days later, Marion was picked up, and they were both arraigned. Now, both of them kept their character, but Marion was heard whimpering to detectives, for God's sake, don't make me testify against my mother. Eva, never losing the time to be her extra self, said, really, if this situation were not so serious, it would be laughable. I have nothing to fear. But um, her bravado was followed within two hours by two suicide attempts in her cell. So, obviously, she's not laughing. From beginning to end, the arrest, arraignment, and trial of Eva Caber provided the greatest carnival of publicity and sensationalism Cleveland had ever endured or enjoyed. The Caber case, Caber case was front news in all three Cleveland daily newspapers from June 1st until late July, and no fact, rumor, or speculation was left unpublished. One of the magistrates even allowed a female press reporter, Louette B. Pollock, to spend a night in jail as a feigned report or feigned prisoner with Miss Caber and Marion. Hardly a day went by without damning headlines about Mrs. Caber and the flavor of unequivocal editorial condemnation that was perfectly epitomized by a small headline from the news leader during the last week of the trial. Laughing time is over. Paying time comes now. Now, meanwhile, the police were busy hauling in suspects from the vast subculture of mediums, fortune tellers, and outright criminals Eva had cultivated in her salad days. 
Within days, Cleveland police arrested several women suspected, most significantly in Mrs. Armenia Col Colavito, a midwife, fortune teller, and potion vendor who was apprehended by a flying squad of police, a flying squad, so I guess they flew right in on their brooms, to Sandusky, Ohio. In mid-June, Salvatore Kala, one of the alleged caber killers, was picked up by a Cleveland detective at his uncle's farm in New York State. By the beginning of the trial on June 28th, the county prosecutor had all the threads of the story in his hand. And what a story it was. So it goes something like this, allowing for, you know, lies, conflicting lies, and just all the ways that they tried to twist their own stories. But this is the, the gist of it, the main thread. Eva Caber had always been a superstitious soul, and from a tender age had consulted fortune tellers, mediums, and the like. Now, when she was 17, a medium told her something that she would never forget through all of her years of scheming, mayhem, and treachery. You'll always get what you want. Eva, apparently unaware of the medium's handwritten notes, which include, included some added insights, bold and confident, but not very smart. During the decade of her marriage to Don Caber, even continued to frequent practitioners of the black arts. Now, come on. Like, just because they're fortune tellers doesn't mean they're black arts. Like, come on. Often telling large, often spending large sums of money on the fortune telling and lucky charms. Sometimes in the spring of 1918, Eva went to Mrs. Mary Wade, a medium who was living in East 82nd Street. Now, Eva, she painted herself this poor little unhappy wife, and she asked Mrs. Spade's spiritual intercession to persuade her first ex-husband, Thomas McCardle, remember, Marion's dad, to pay for her daughter's tuition at Smith College. Mrs. Wade agreed to do this, but it astutely suggested that Miss Caber also make the request directly to Miss McCardle in a letter. Okay, so she does this, and bam! McCardle comes forth with a with um, a large check, and what does Eva do? Man, she believes Mrs. Wade's supernatural intervention did the trick. Eva had a bigger challenge for Mrs. Wade. She now asked her to kill her husband. Mrs. Wade, or so she later testified, she immediately and piously refused her client's request, righteously telling Eva that her powers could not be used for such an evil purpose. So, Eva decided that she was going to get in touch with a rather hard fellow from Little Italy, Urbano di Corpo. Okay, she found, her through Mrs. found him through Mrs. Saucer, who was a medium that she had been in touch with. Eva found de Corpo while waiting in line for tickets at the Stillman Theater on Euclid Avenue. Drawing him aside, she pointed out her husband and offered de Corpo $5,000 to run Dan over with the automobile. Okay, so that's just a random little side story because nothing ever came of that. And no one really knows why that, that plot wasn't pursued, but it wasn't. And around the same time, Eva deliberately set Caber home on fire with gasoline. But guess who she blamed it on? Her poor, pliable mother. Eva began, at the same time, supplementing Dan's food with match heads and other unwholesome substances. She is just going round the block. She is just paying people left and right to kill her husband, trying to burn her house down. Now she's feeding him matches. Like, ew. It was DeCorpo who introduced Eva 
to Ermenia Colvito, mother of five, midwife, neighborhood abortionist, and general all-around hand at the Black Arts. In good time, Eva journeyed to Mrs. C's Maple Road home, spoke freely to the spiritual practitioner of Dan's supposed objectionable practices, and begged for a potion to set him straight. Potions were soon forthcoming, and Dan Caber began to suffer the mysterious decline that would climax with his violent death in July 1919. Now, this medium would later claim that she, her potions were composed of only olive oil and ginger ale. But it's worth noting that another potion that she sold, composed mainly of chloral hydrate, sold at about the same time to a man named Pascal Julian to cure his brother John, was put later in the state hospital for the insane in Newburgh. Okay, so apparently that olive oil and ginger ale just was enough to drive someone nuts. Sometime late June or early July of 1919, Eva became impatient with the progress of Mrs. C's fluids. Like, you're not killing fast enough, Miss C. I need something faster, okay? So she decided, you know what's quicker than poisoning slowly to death? I'm a killing. So she decided that she was going to um, hire someone to kill him. She just stated to Mrs. Calvito, I would pay anything to have someone kill him. Well, Miss Cavalito, she saw some dollar signs. And she soon recruited, recruited Salvatore Calla and Vittorio Caselli, young toughs from Little Italy who could neither read nor write English. Miss Copper got right to the point. I want you to kill my husband. I've tried, and I've not succeeded. I mean, like, she did. She tried to pay someone to run him over. She tried to burn the house down. Now she's been trying to poison him, and it's just not working. This dude is just not going to die. What is he, Rasputin? By mid-July, Eva had struck a bargain with them in an arraignment. Kala later recalled that made Eva just tickled pink. While she was safely away at Cedar Point, remember, she was going to go visit her sister at Cedar Point. Probably didn't have, you know, the adventure park there, but who knows. Mrs. Brickle, while she was safely away at Cedar Point, they would enter the house at night, admitted by Mrs. Brickle, remember, the mother, you know, the grandmother of Marion, and stabbed Dan in his bed. Carla was given a penciled map of the house, and he and Pacelli were promised that the house would be prepared so that caper, the caper would look like a burglary gone awry. Colin Pacelli were also promised somewhere between $3,000 and $5,000 for their night's work. And on July 10th, Eva took her mother, Marion, aside and said, I want you to do some dirty work for me, Mama. I'm going to have Dan killed. Like, wow. Eva's just telling everybody, listen, I'm killing this dude. On July 16th, Eva drove away to Cedar Point to establish her alibi. The night before, while Marion generously played the piano on the first floor to mask any noise, her performance included I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, Darandella, and Hen Dustin. So some happy music to cover up a murder. Okay. Eva brought the two hired killers into the house for a dry run. All right, let's practice how you're going to kill him. Marion had already jimmied the dining room bureau at Eva's command, and Eva shru had shrewdly taken the stolen silver to the house of one of her many medium friends. Everything was ready for the murder on Thursday night. Thursday night came and went. Mary Brickle, who was supposed to be on the porch in her rocking chair after dark to let the killers in, she got cold feet, and she kept to her room. She's like, listen, if they're going to do it, they're not doing it with my help, okay? I'm going to go in my room and pretend like I have no idea what's going on, okay? Well, 
The next morning, the killers contacted Marin and told her that if Mary didn't cooperate, they'd kill her too. Listen, your mom don't let us in. She's dead too. We're just going to kill everybody. Or as Collip poetically put it, tell the old lady we'll blow her brains out. Yep, straight poetry right there. Well, the actual killing went off quite smoothly. Marion reportedly gave the signal to the murderers either by emptying a pitcher of water out the window or flushing the toilet adjacent to her bedroom. Okay, so let me just dump some water out. Nothing suspicious. Let me just flush the toilet even though I didn't use it. It's cool. It's cool. No, don't listen to that person coming in the window. It's cool. Entering through a door left conveniently unlocked by Mary Brickle, the killers stealthily made their way to the house and into Dan Caver's bedroom. There in the dark, Kala held down the paralyzed invalid. Now remember, Dan had... So, they're holding him down, and he literally has no way to use his limbs besides two fingers. Okay? So they hold him down, wearing heavy canvas gloves, and they stab him 24 times. Kala later testifies that the helpless cripple cried out, Mercy, mercy, what have I done to you? Like, how freaking sad is that? This dude is getting, like, stabbed to death, and he's like, like, what did I do? Like, I've literally been laying in this bed, can't do anything, and, like, I'm getting stabbed to death? Kala, for his pains, got badly bitten on the thumb by the gutsy invalid. Right? And they apparently dropped both their gloves and an unused razor on the way out. So before they were caught, the aftermath of the killing was not a happy time for anyone involved. Okay? Eva's being haunted by the murder. She's fearing her accomplices are going to either implicate or blackmail her. And honestly, the only payment that anyone received for this murder was a $500 bill and some of the stolen silver. Alright? And Dan's Masonic, Masonic ring taken by his finger from Eva the days before his death. The $500 in the bill, $500 bill in the ring were forwarded to Miss Colavito through another medium friend, okay? And Marion Matthews, it's his friend, she insisted on keeping the silver as her own commission. She's like, listen, if I'm passing around money for someone dying, I'm getting cut in. End of story. So the rest of the promised $3,000 or $5,000, whichever it was, was never forthcoming. Colin Paselli kept threatening, but, like, she just literally never paid them. She's like, sorry, you suck. I'm not paying you. Eva's trial, which was a carnival of sens sensationalism, opened on June 28th. The proceedings held in the old county courthouse were packed to suffocation, with rubberneckers fighting for spaces at office windows and adjacent buildings. Most of the spectators in and out of the courthouse, and it's recorded, it is recorded for female. By this time, both Kala and Col Kala and Colvito had turned state's evidence, and both Marion and Mrs. Brickle had signed confessions implicating Eva for the murder. Okay, it's going to be almost impossible to get her off, but yet the trial proved to be both well-matched legally and the exciting judicial struggle that made legal history. So despite all the fact that, like, literally everything is pointing that Eva did this, like, it was a close call. It was like a struggle. Because much of this excitement was due to the fact that forensics, due to the forensic talents of William J. Corrigan, Eva's court-appointed lawyer. Then, a young man, Corrigan was at the beginning of a career that would make him Cleveland's premier defense attorney. His best-known case would come near the end of his long career when he acted as a defense attorney at Sam Shepard's infamous trial. First trial. Corrigan knew that Eva was guilty, and worse than that, that she had already confessed to most of the facts of the conspiracy murderer plot against her husband. 
Corrigan therefore concentrated on two procedural aspects of the case in a desperate effort to save his client from the electrical chair. His first concern was to keep women off the jury. Sexist or not, whatever you may say, and virtually everyone involved in the trial believed he was, believed that women were inclined to be more merciless in judging a member of their own sex and less inclined to sentiment, sentimentality than men when sending females to the hot seat. Okay, now remember, long before women's rights and things like that, they just believed that women, they just they couldn't do that. They just didn't have it in them to do that much evil. They were just simple creatures. Although his legal argument in this regard were overruled, Corrigan managed to keep women off the jury with parliamentary challenges. So, like, he pretty much got what he wanted. So, Corrigan's other and more important and ultimately successful fight was to persuade the jury that Eva was insane. The state was demanding that she die in the electrical chair, but Corrigan hoped to get her off with either a plea of temporary insanity or simply insanity from birth. Ultimately, he chose a total insanity plea. And his witnesses provided much support. Okay, so the state paraded a success, a succession of alienists. Okay, so that's what these call psychiatrists, I guess. Well, okay, who solemnly testified that Eva Caber was sane. Okay, so the state's getting all these aliens, okay, or therapists, to come in and be like, no, she's sane. She's just an awful person. Okay, but the defense responded with several alienists of their own. Okay. They said, no, this chick is crazy. Like, she's straight cray-cray. The defense responded with more convincing, doubtless, and adding testimonies of Eva's brother, father, sister, who all recounted many stories of her growing up that proved that she was straight crazy from an early age. Eva eventually gave, gave dramatic support to this insanity argument. Okay, although she remained hidden most of the time behind a handkerchief, mute and pale while this prog this was progressing okay as her family members started to testify she became progressively and visibly upset okay she decided that she was going to um really lose it the day that her brother charlie remember the one that they set the trap with she he was talking about how it was not Mrs. Brickle, who set the house on fire, okay? Charlie got to his feet, and he was shouting, That's a lie. I can prove it. She's sick of the time. Okay? So Eva went into a fit, screaming, flailing, foaming, and finally collapsing in a moaning heap. She was removed from court and did not return until the next day. Prosecutor Stanton argued in his summation that her behavior then and afterwards was fake. Okay? She's faking it so she can prove she's crazy. Okay, but once the sex, the jury believed otherwise. The best comment made about Mrs. Caper's breakdown was to Major Majorie Wilson, a news feature writer who covered the trial and later married William J. Corrigan, whom she first, who she met for the first time there at this trial. She was a fellow spectator, and she walked from the courtroom that day saying, if that is acting, what an Ophelia she would make. Parkour, sensation mongers. Okay, they were disappointed. Because Eva did not actually take the stand herself. Thank God, because she's straight gray. On July 15th, 1921, the prosecution rested, and the jury went into seclusion. Early the next morning, they returned with a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree, with a recommendation of mercy. Okay?
Okay, so she was the second woman, Eva was, in Cuyahoga County that was ever convicted of first-degree murder. Okay, but the mercy part that she would be facing life in prison instead of, you know, the electrical chair. So the reading of the verdict was delayed for two hours. Why? Oh, because Eva, she had to suffer yet another fit, okay, when she was told by her, her attorneys that the jury had reached a verdict. They reached a verdict, oh, cool, now I'm going to lose it. She was carried limp into the courtroom by two deputies. The grinding of her teeth was distinctly audible. So I don't know if you've ever, like, been around someone grinding their teeth or you actually know, like, what it is with grinding your teeth. But to grind it that loud for the courtroom to hear, like, that is some, like, she is, she would make a great affiliate. Like, that chick can act. Her lips were bloody. Okay, she was a hot mess. But two minutes past 11, she could not push it any longer. Caber was sentenced. She was sentenced to life in prison. Okay, so she did get her mercy of no electrical chair. And she had to go to Marysville Reformery for life. Okay, the verdict came just two days shy of the second anniversary of Don Caber's murder. So she, when she got into prison, she was like, shocked that she was going to have to wear, you know, a prison uniform. Like, what? I can't keep my silks and ribbons and all of this. Like, what? That, that That's not cool. She was offered $50,000 for film rights to her life. She schemed to use the money to try to escape. She tried to bribe prison authorities. And she proved, um, but she decided that she, the people that she decided to try to bribe were just above that. Thank God. And she did not get out. So Eva's health began to fail in late teen, the late 1920s. A long-needed goiter operation helped some, but Eva refused treatment for a subsequent gastric tumor diagnosed in 1927, telling doctors, you just want to kill me. Like, there's nothing wrong with me. You just want to kill me. So this may have been a part of a deliberate strategy to win parole for medical reasons, but it was a slow, sure doom for Eva. After 1929, her health declined alarmingly, and she was bedridden for the last few months of her life. The end came on April 12, 1931, just as the governor of Ohio was about to act on her latest parole request. Now, the cause of the death listed, inc listed included lung complications, heart disease, and the stomach tumor, which was reported to weigh a whopping 150 pounds. She had a stomach tumor that weighed 150 pounds, like Whoa. Yeah, it was definitely the doctor trying to kill you and not that goiter or tumor. She died at 50 years old. Okay, so what are the others that are involved in Eva Caber's satanic plot? Well, her daughter, Marion McArdle, was found innocent in a subsequent trial. How? No freaking clue. Okay, the verdict seemingly was incomprehensible to anyone who had knowledge of her complicity in her stepfather's murder before, during, and after the fact. And uh, Marion's immediate response from the verdict was to go clothes shopping. She got married a year later, and um, that's about it, except that she was there when her mother died, and she arranged for Eva to be cremated in Portsmouth. Now, the grandmother, Mary Brickle, indictment, it was quashed. She was too old. Her cooperation with the prosecution helped her a lot. Salvatore Calla received a life term, as did Vittorio Pacelli, the two murderers who actually, you know, did the killing. In Italy, where he was pursued, he was found in Italy, where he was pursued and brought to justice by yet more detectives hired by Moses Cobber. Like, literally, if Dan's dad had not been like, this is bullshit, I'm going to go and 
like bring him to just her to justice myself, Eva would have never been caught because the police had nothing. Like they were doing nothing. So this is all Moses and his money. Now Miss Colvito improbably was acquitted at her own trial, despite evidence introduced that her potions had been effective in ridding a number of women clients of their husbands. So she literally was acquitted, despite fact that like you know Aquatafana, except probably not like bad husbands, just bad wives. But, 1924, she was finally convicted and sentenced to prison for her part in a 1920 poisoning of an unwanted husband named Mario Costanzo. Okay, she died at the age of 86. She lived a long life. Ethel was the last heard from in 1921, September. Okay, she had to go into hiding because she kept getting death threats stemming from her cobber testimony. Like, really? Like, I don't understand who was threatening to kill her because... I mean, Eva was a horrible person and needed to be brought to justice. And she did awful, horrible things. Like, why is Ethel getting all of these death threats? But that is the story of Eva Caber and how she, with her daughter and her mother, went ahead and had a conspiracy to kill her husband. So if you're interested in this story and others like it, you should look at Women Behaving Badly, Cleveland's Most Ferocious Female Killers, an anthology by John Stark Bellamy II. Okay, this is where I received most of my information for today's true crime tale. And stay tuned for the next installment of Murder Obsessed. Thanks for listening.